captures very well for us what we've been learning in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been tracking through the gospel according to Matthew here. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for the last couple weeks and we will continue to be in it for a few more weeks. That is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And what we're learning here in Matthew is that Jesus is the king. He is our king who we ought to bow our knee to and live our lives in submission to him as the king, as the ultimate authority. And our king gives us commands. And his commands are captured here in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us the the culture of the Beatitudes and then he gives us the Sermon on the Mount and different commands here that he would give us, that he would instruct his people in how to live. Now, one of the challenging things about the Sermon on the Mount is that Many people see this as good teaching, right? Regardless of the, the cultural setting or the religion that you are in, people would read the Sermon on the Mount and think, these are good attributes which anyone should ascribe to, which anyone should want to live out. The world wants the culture of the kingdom, but they don't want the king. I mean, when it comes to bowing your, bowing your knee in submission to a different authority, authority outside of yourself, authority outside of your own impulses and desires, that's, that's out of the question. But if you want me to be a nice, good, lovely person, that's great, I can do that. And so we as Christians, as we wade into the Sermon on the Mount, we need to keep in mind that these beatitudes, that the Sermon on the Mount, that the attributes and the commands of the kingdom are only possible for us when we bow our knee in submission to King Jesus as our authority. And so our king has given us these commands. Today we're going to look at the command of anger. It's on page 810 in the Pew Bible. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. We're going to dig into that passage, but before we do, I kind of want to summarize how we are interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and if you were here Last week, as we summarized that passage, we talked about the distinction between the law and the gospel. And I hope, I almost hope that you left here last week wondering, does it even matter how I live? Because I pushed the gospel so hard in this passage that Jesus has fulfilled the law, that Jesus is who we can't be, that Jesus lived the life that we can't live, that Jesus is where we find all of our hope. I pushed that so far that I hope people are almost left wondering, does it even matter how I live? Does it matter if I strive to do right or to do wrong? And the reason I wanted to push that so hard is because I want to remind us that we are justified by Jesus, not by our own works, not by our own merits, not by our ability to change or modify our behavior, but by gospel internal transformation from Jesus Christ alone. Because we have to get that. We have to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us before we can live out the Sermon on the Mount. Before we can really apply Jesus's commands, we have to understand what he's done for us. And so let me summarize kind of how we're interpreting the Sermon on the Mount with this grid. First of all, we've been called to walk with Jesus for life. So in Matthew chapter 4 verses 17 through 22 and through the end of the chapter, we see Jesus calling groups of people to come and follow him, to walk with him for life. Among this group of people, there is, there is Matthew, the tax collector, the author of our book, who made a great income ripping poor people off. That's a guy that Jesus called to come and follow him. We have Luke, a doctor who had a great income by being a doctor, by healing people with his hands and using the medical technologies of the day to heal people. We have Peter, James, John, and Andrew, common folk, fishermen, middle class, blue-collar to lower class income. Jesus called them to come and follow him. 
And then we have the extreme outcasts of society. We see that at the end of Matthew chapter 4. We have the, the paralytics and, and the handicapped who Jesus has called to come and follow him. So he's building this community of people to come and follow him. And he calls them to walk with him for life. We need to keep that in mind. That discipleship, that following Jesus, apprenticing Jesus is a lifelong journey. It's not a one and done justification or our salvation is a one-time event, but sanctification, the working of that out, takes a lifetime. So Jesus invites them, and he invites you and I to come and follow him and to, to walk with him and to follow his teachings and to, to apply them and to, to be transformed by them. And so he's called us. He's also commanded us, and we looked at it this week, to perfectly obey God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He commands us to do something we are incapable of doing. Having a righteousness that exceeds the most righteous of all. Having this, this type of life that is unattainable for us. That's Jesus' command. King Jesus commands his followers to have a life of perfection. How many of you are perfect? How many of you think perfection is going to be attainable within the next day, month, year, couple of years, lifetime? So Jesus commands something that's, in, that's impossible for us, but then he commends us through his perfect obedience. I mean, this is as we continue to walk through the scriptures, this is the entire scope of the New Testament that we are commended, or theologically the term is justified by Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus alludes to it here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets or external conformity to behavior or behavioral modification. I have not come to abolish your good works and the way that you live, but I've come to fulfill the commands. I've not come to do away with God's commands of commanding you to live perfectly, but I came to fulfill it because I know that you are incapable of fulfilling it. Jesus dies in our place. He lives the life that we can't. He dies the death that we should. And now as we place our faith and trust in him, as we receive his call, his invitation to walk with him, we are commended as righteous, as perfect. We're justified. That's the event. We're saved. We're forgiven. That's what we camped on last week. We talked about this justification, the distinction between the law and the gospel. But now we need to move into the commission justification, the fact that we're saved, doesn't mean that we can go now live however we want to live. Jesus gives commands to his followers. We're incapable of following those commands, so we're commended through him, but then he commissions us out to actually go and now live this life out. We are commissioned by Jesus to live the life that we formerly couldn't. So if we keep in, in mind the, the overarching teaching of Scripture, you and I, we are now to bow our knee in submission to King Jesus who gives us commands, who tells us how we are to live our lives. He has some expectations of us. I mean, this is King Jesus saying, yes, you're saved by my perfect righteousness and now I've sent my spirit so that you could go and do what I've commanded you to do. You can't just go about and live however you want. There's actually a cultural expectation here in my family, in my kingdom. And so he's going to engage anger on that. But before we look at anger, I just want to do a little bit of overview of these Old Testament and New Testament passages to understand this commissioning more. So we understand how God works this out in us. Look at Jeremiah chapter, it's actually chapter 31, what's on, there, 
on the screen is wrong. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 34 through verses 31 through 34. It's on page 660 in the Pew Bible. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Listen to this promise that God gave his people through his prophet Jeremiah. God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and they will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, there's this prophecy saying that when, when Jesus comes, now he's, he's, he's changing the law from this external this external. Um, behavioral modification to now there's this internal transformation. I'm writing my law on their hearts. I'm empowering them to do something that they couldn't do. What went from an impossible command was now taken care of in Jesus and we're commended through Jesus' righteousness and now we are commissioned, we are transformed, we are given this new heart with a new law written on it to actually obey Jesus' commands, to live this out as we are commissioned. Flip over to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. It's on page 724 in the Pew Bible. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Now God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel, and he says, I will sprinkle you clean, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that I, I will put this new heart in you, this new ability. You will be able to do what you formerly couldn't do. Once Jesus has come, he has lived the perfect life, he has died the sacrificial death, and the spirit is sent, you can now do what you otherwise could not do. Flip back to Matthew chapter 28. Let's look at the end of Matthew. We will come back to Matthew 5. I promise we'll get back to anger, but we need this grid to understand anger. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's on page 835. This is after Jesus' life. He's lived the perfect life now. He's died the sacrificial death. He's overcome sin and death in the grave, and he is about to ascend back into heaven. And here's what he tells his followers. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so he's saying, you've watched me live for three years, you've heard my teachings, And now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and I am sending you out. He told us in Matthew chapter 5, we're sent out as salt and light. He's telling us here in Matthew chapter 28, we're sent out to obey him and to teach others to obey him. And then last one, Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It's on page 909. This is right before Jesus' ascension. And he says to his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive 
power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. How are we his witnesses? By living out his commands in a world that is going the opposite way of his commands. Okay, so that, that's the grid for understanding the, the Sermon on the Mount, understanding the gospel. Jesus has invited us, he's called us to walk with him for life. He's commanded us to do something we're incapable of doing. He has done that thing for us in our place on our behalf, and now he has sent us out to go and do that very thing, right? Seems kind of schizophrenic, doesn't it? But this is, this is the gospel. What we can't do without Jesus, we now can do in Jesus. With that as a grid, let's get back into the topic for today. Anger. Flip back to Matthew chapter 5 with me. I'm going to have you stand as I read the passage for this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. God, I pray that you would teach us through this word this morning what is good and right and true. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so to understand this text, what I want to do is just walk it through the grid that I showed you before. So we are called to walk with Jesus for life, right? That applies to anger. That applies to this passage. Jesus, remember, he invites people to, to follow him into this life of discipleship so that these things could be worked out in us. Salvation is an event. Our, our being justified before God by the blood of Jesus is an event. It happened like that, and it happens like that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. But our transformation takes a lifetime, does it not? Can I get an amen on that? How many of you have ridded yourself of all anger? When you became a Christian, was anger gone forever? When you became a Christian, was lust gone forever, which is what we're going to talk about next week? When you became a Christian, judgment was it taken away forever? It was taken away, but did you know how to deal with it? No. Jesus has invited us to walk with him in this lifelong step-in-step journey of discipleship. We'll talk more about this as we go, but even just now as we go and give yourself some grace and patience. God has given you an incredible amount of grace and patience in his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's called you to walk with him. He's commanded you to perfectly obey God. The, the command of this text here, it, it takes this so much deeper, right? Jesus takes this deeper. He says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Anyone remember where that is? Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, you shall not commit murder, right? One of God's commands written on stone to his people. You shall not murder. Okay, and so most people think, well, that's pretty easy. I have enough self-control to not kill somebody when I'm mad at them. Most of us in this room, we all get this, at least I hope, right? It's a safe place. We all have enough restraint to not do the, the act of murder. 
And so people think, okay, I, I can follow Jesus. I can control my anger. I can manage my anger. I can go to anger management if it gets bad enough. And Jesus says, but I say to you, verse 22, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell. How many of you have called another person a fool? Most. Or, or an idiot. Or, or just, the point here is, it's not about the word fool or what type of insult. Jesus is driving it deeper and saying that, that anger, yes, it acts out in murder, but also harboring anger in your heart, that is an act. It's an act which causes you to push people away. It's an act which causes you to oppose people. The Greek word for anger and wrath come from the same root word. To have wrath means to be steadily opposed to someone. Now, God has good wrath. He's steadily opposed to what's wrong. God has good, righteous anger. He's steadily opposed to what's wrong. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that we are always to be for people, not against people. Let me summarize how Jesus is teaching about anger here to say it is to pursue the command here in this passage, which what Jesus is teaching his followers to do is to always pursue relational reconciliation rather than live with steady opposition. It has nothing to do with murder. It really doesn't have to do with if you call someone an idiot or a fool or whether you temporarily get angry with somebody. It has to do with, with positioning your heart to be opposed to someone else and ultimately a brother or a sister in Jesus. The context of this text here that we read in the Sermon on the Mount is about Christian relationships. Jesus cares very much about how we treat our enemies. He's going to talk about that later in Matthew chapter 6. But here, this text is about how we do life together with other followers of Jesus. And he's saying the characteristic of my kingdom, my people, my culture, my church... You are, to, you are commissioned now to go out and to always pursue relational reconciliation, never living with steady opposition. To, to call someone a fool, it's really what you're doing, or to insult one of your brothers or to be angry, it's this deeper heart issue where that person has offended me, they haven't given me what I want, they, 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 they've done something to hurt and offend me, and so I'm now positioned against them. Now, let me just stop and say some of you have been incredibly hurt by other people, by other brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus' teaching isn't for you to just cozy up to them again. Right? Like there's wisdom in this, in finding distance, finding space, and if this person is a dangerous person or, or their, their relationship here is so dysfunctional that it continually hurts me and sends me into a funk, there, could be, there is a time and a place to, to create some boundaries around relationships. Jesus isn't saying that we need to be best friends with everyone. But he is saying that we can't position ourselves against others. Anger in this context is far less about your emotional reaction. And it's far more about your heart for relational reconciliation. Right? Like sometimes we, we see anger on the surface and we think that person is an angry person because they, because they express themselves and they lash out. But that very person may be the most likely and most quick to say, I was wrong, let's work through this. And then the self-controlled person who doesn't lash out and doesn't act out may say, I'm not going to reconcile. 
No way, you hurt me, you offended me, we're not working through this. Anger in this context has far more to do with how you position yourself towards other people. Do, do you become opposed to them when they hurt and offend you? Do you cut them off? Do you, do you treat them as though there's no hope for redemption? Or do you in brokenness come before God and, and say, I acted wrongly, but man, my heart is really for them. My heart is for this relationship. And even if that means there's distance, God, would you help me to posture myself towards forgiving that person? Jesus is getting at what's underneath anger is how we view people. And do we view people as children of God? Do we view our brothers and sisters in Christ as children of God who always have God's favor? Regardless of, of the hurt and the pain that they've done to us. I mean, God has redeemed and reconciled and renewed us. And so the opposite of anger is having hope or faith that God can always redeem and reconcile another person. Jesus here is pushing us to, to consider our hearts and our attitudes. Anger is not just an attitude, right? Like murder is an act. We can all agree on that. And I think most of us think that anger is just an emotion or an action or, or an attitude. Well, anger can manifest itself more often in emotion and, and attitude, but it's also an action which begins to distance people. If it's, if it's not understanding the worth and value and dignity of a human life and soul and becoming opposed to that person because they've hurt you or they've not given you what you want, that shows and reveals a heart of anger. And Jesus here isn't mincing his words. He's saying, if you, who claim to be my followers, if you live your life steadily opposed to other people who are my followers, you may not have a saving faith. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If you position yourself in a steady opposition to God's people, you may prove that you don't understand the gospel that you haven't received his forgiveness of you, that you haven't received his grace in you. If you have this undealt with bitterness, and again, this is a journey, right? I know many of us here, we're struggling to be okay with people. There's people in our lives who we're struggling to get reconciled with. There's people in our lives who we don't even know how to approach reconciliation with. That's one thing. But, but the main thing is, is your heart growing hard and judgmental towards them and do you want to punish them? Or, God, would you fix the situation? Would you redeem that broken person? Would, would you, even if, even if that means that I'm out of the equation, would you help that person to find life in you? That's the opposite of anger. That's what Jesus is calling his people to do. Now, again, remember, we're commended by Jesus' righteous life and sacrificial death, which reconciles us to God. The good news of the gospel is that we so struggle to follow that command, do we not? When, when we are deeply hurt and wounded by people, when we are affected by people, and again, just to be clear, that doesn't mean that we always run back and that things have to go to how they were before. Things aren't always hunky-dory. Sometimes it's like, I'm never going to see that person again, but my heart needs to get right before God with them. And even when we understand the gospel, 
it's hard to do this, is it not, church? Like, small manifestations of anger, the way that we talk to people, the way that you talk to your kids after a long, stressful day. Oh, I'm guilty. I love my kids. They're amazing. Sometimes they drive me nuts. Safe place to confess that. And it is so easy to lose my patience with them and to, and to show them something more in line with anger. Like, I am against, I can be against their actions without being against their personhood. But it's a slippery slope. Same thing with your spouse. Same thing with a friend, with a roommate, with a parent, with a coworker. We can be against action, but we need to be very careful that our anger towards action doesn't slip into being opposed to the person. There's, there's two types of anger here that Jesus, before we move on to the commission here, two types of anger that Jesus doesn't really address. He's addressing that, that kind of anger that's opposed to a person. But there is a place and a time for kind of emotional outburst of anger, right? There, anger is an emotion that rises up. We see it happen in Jesus. Jesus goes into the temple and people are using the temple as a place of profit. They're, they're selling things for profit and they're ripping people off. And what does Jesus do? If you remember the story, he overturns the money table. Money table. A show of anger. Jesus has anger, a steady opposition to the things that destroy the character and the work of God. So, so there is a time to be angry. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. The Apostle Paul instructs Jesus' followers to be angry about the things that are worth being angry about, to, to have emotional reaction and anger towards injustice in the world, but in that do not sin. Do not make peace with anger, or do not let that anger position you against another person. For example, Jesus turned over that money table. He displayed anger. He showed righteous anger, righteous indignation towards the Jews who were using his temple as a place of profit. Okay, he was opposed to their action. He wasn't opposed to the person. How do we know this? When Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when he's on the cross, he's put there by the religious leaders and the Roman officials, the same people that he turned the table over on, he, he showed anger towards these religious leaders. What does he say from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See the difference there? He, he shows anger because there, there was this righteous indignation. He was opposed to what they were doing, but his heart never became opposed to who they were. As he was hanging there, beaten by them, betrayed by them, mocked by them. He says, Father, forgive them for they not what they do. So, so don't equate anger to just emotional display of disapproval. It's turning opposed to somebody, which is an offense against the image of God in somebody. There's another kind of anger which Jesus doesn't really deal with here. It's emotionally fleeting anger, which is, <laughs> I think, in our human Reality just unavoidable. So there is a righteous anger, a good anger, actually a holy anger that's against what God is for, but then there's this emotionally fleeting anger which I think comes into this command that we are incapable to follow. Like, I don't know about you, I don't know if I'm ever going to get rid of my emotionally fleeting angers, like anger outbursts, like driving down a road and some idiot cuts you off. Am I liable to the fire of hell because internally I'm like, ah! 
Well, be careful. It's a slippery slope from there to that person is an idiot who has no hope. It is a slippery slope. I think that's an emotionally fleeting anger which can be here and gone. So be careful of it. It's a gauge to help you understand your heart. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying like if in a moment of disagreement you raise your voice and you flail your arms that you're liable to hell. He's saying in a moment of disagreement if you raise your voice and you flail your arms, can you come back and say, no, God is for this person, therefore I must be for this person. Okay? And then we are commended by Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death. This reconciles us to God. Lastly, we are now, same thing as the command, we are now commissioned to pursue relational reconciliation rather than being steadily opposed. Jesus empowers us now through his spirit. He commissions us to go out and to do the very thing that he commanded that we are incapable of doing because Jesus stepped into our place. That's the gospel. That's what we worship. That's why we worship Jesus. We gather together to minister to one another. I mean, ultimately, what I want every Sunday when we gather at Park Community Church is I want you to walk out of here feeling like you, you would be hopeless without Jesus. I, I want you to walk out of here thinking Jesus is the most incredible person worthy of your worship and praise. That's what I want for you. I struggle to go to the commission part because I'm like, that's about what we are to do. And Jesus empowers us to do that. But I'm going to expand the commission part a little bit here because that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is what I expect of you now. So come and worship me, bow your knee before me, admit your dependence on me, and now get up and go do, church. Get up and go do. So what is our commission? I think based off of this anger teaching, our commission is to remember the God-given worth of all people. Remember the God-given worth of all people and, and their, their potential for redemption in Jesus. And if they're brothers and sisters, like the text here is telling us, saying, let no anger seep into the church, let no anger seep into your relationships between believers. When Jesus says brothers here, he's actually meaning your, your, your church family, your extended family, anyone who calls on the Lord Jesus as Savior, they are your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Let no anger get into that place. How do we do that? By remembering that all people are created in the image and likeness of God. That people have an incredible amount of worth and value, an infinite amount of worth and value because they are created in the image of God. God breathed his life into them. And so who in the world are you to condemn them if God is working for them? Secondly, consider what great lengths Jesus went through to reconcile you and your brothers and sisters to God. It, it, it becomes increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to harbor bitterness and anger towards somebody that you remind yourself that Jesus died to save. So if you want to grow up in humility and grow up in letting go of resentment and bitterness if you want relationships to even have hope or potential of restoration, remind yourself that Jesus did the same thing for that person that he does for you. He died in their place on their behalf to reconcile them to God the Father. Thirdly, submit to your new authority and live as he expects. You have a new authority. You have a new power, church. 
The Spirit of God is in you. Jesus is your King who has given you a command. Don't listen to the culture of the world that says if somebody hurts you and offends you this bad, you can just write them off. Like, that's the, that's the wisdom of the world, right? The culture of the world is if somebody's a bad influence or if somebody is a negative Nelly or if someone is not positive, cut them out. If somebody has hurt you once or twice, cut them out forever. Well, you may need to draw a line and say, we're never doing life together again, but God, don't position my heart against them. Position my heart for them. Submit to your new authority and live as he expects. Your authority is not the passive-aggressive culture that you live in which sweeps conflict under the rug. Amen? Is that Minnesota culture? Is that Minnesota authority? Is that the church culture and authority often? Like, don't, deal, don't bring that up. Just sweep it under the rug and pretend it's okay. And over time, it builds and it festers and becomes this unavoidable wound. In anger, you are positioning yourself as against someone. And over years, you, you stop talking to that person. And you stop hoping for their best. Don't submit to the authority of your own insecurity that... I should have this conversation with that person, but I'm too insecure. Your insecurity is not your authority. Jesus is your authority. He has told you how to live. Let no anger fester. Let no anger remain. Insult no one. Call no one a fool. Be angry with no one. Always hope for God's best. Pray for them. As Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, as far as you can, as far as it depends on you, seek to live at peace with all. This is what Jesus meant earlier in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Your authority, Jesus, has called you to pursue reconciliation. He's your authority. Not your insecurities, not the culture around you, not, are you listening to Jesus? Are you pursuing Jesus? Are you doing what he expects? And then lastly, our commission, our application is to urgently seek reconciliation. Look at how Jesus closes out here, verse 23. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, that's how it starts, something against you, it becomes anger, it becomes insult, it becomes positioning against somebody. If you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. And he goes on to finish that thought. But here's the urgency. They were traveling to Jerusalem to, to fulfill the Old Testament tradition, to bring sacrifice to the temple. Jesus is saying, I don't care how inconvenient it is for you, seek reconciliation. If that means you go from Jerusalem back to your hometown, do it now. Don't finish your religious tradition and sacrifice in Jerusalem. First, go and fix that relationship. Because if that relationship remains with you being angry and opposed against that person, this gift at the altar is not worthy of anything. I mean, some of you feel like God is so distant and, and you, you, you do your best effort, you come to church and try to worship him, but your heart feels cold and you may try and blame the worship team, although you can never do that here. We have a great worship team. Thanks, guys. But you try and blame the worship team or the preaching or the style of music or the people. Maybe it's your broken relationships. Maybe God feels distant because you're not living as Jesus, your king, has commanded you to live. Seeking reconciliation. 
urgently going and seeking restoration to your brother or sister. It says, leave your gift at the altar and go. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, Paul says, be angry, and in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It has to do with making peace with anger or peace with people. Jesus has sent us out to be peacemakers. So church, ask yourself, who, who do you need to get right with? And again, that may mean keeping some distance. But can you surrender and submit your heart to the lordship of Jesus, to King Jesus, and say, Jesus, would you help me be positioned for this person, for the good, for their best? You always see hope and potential in them. You always see the, the potential for them to become a child of God. Would you help my heart to remain the same towards that person? And then as you do, would you respond to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, that we can't do this on our own, but we are commended, we are justified through Jesus by his blood, and now he sends us out into his spirit to do the very thing that we couldn't. We have two communion stations here in the front, one in the back as we respond to the gospel. You can visit the table and be reminded that Jesus, in fact, lived the life that you couldn't. He died the death that you should have. The cracker represents his body broken for you. The cup, his blood shed for you. Come and worship and, and remember who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. That you lived the perfect life, that you died a sacrificial death in our place on our behalf. Lord, if anyone needs to, to seek reconciliation here and now this morning, I pray that they would go urgently and quickly. And Lord, some of us, we may need to think on it for a while, and I pray that we would continue to think on it. Lord, I pray that you would build in us and create in us a community unlike the world, a community that is not okay being opposed to others, but is always for others and seeking reconciliation the way that you sought reconciliation with us. In Jesus' name, amen.